Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We're welcoming back to the show uh, Professor Eric Rauschway, who is a distinguished professor of history at UC Davis, um, noted scholar of uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal, and author of the book, which just came out, called Why the New Deal Matters. So uh, welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks very much for having me back. Yeah, and um, it, it's an interesting book and a, a nice short little little piece for you know folks who may be you know kind of uh, wondering about kind of uh, broad stroke sort of pictures and examples of what the New Deal was all about and how it continues to shape um, American you know lives to this day in many profound ways and. Um, to to kind of dip dip our toe in here, uh, you you tell and um, you start your book off with a interesting story about the the bonus army, and could you uh, s- set some background uh, about what this was about in the late late twenties and early thirties, and um, you know what what they were asking for and uh, how they organized themselves and so forth. Yeah, the bonus march on Washington, D.C. in 1932 uh, consisted of some thousands, possibly as many as tens of thousands of veterans of the Great War. And in those days, uh, volunteer servicemen in the United States Army didn't have guaranteed benefits the way they now do. That's a result, of course, of the Roosevelt administration. And at the time, they'd been uh, promised by Congress a lump sum payout as a result of their service. And when the Great Depression came and they were suffering from unemployment and deflation the way everyone else was in the country, they thought they'd ask for their lump sum payout sooner. So they got together and they marched and hitched and hopped trains to get to Washington, D.C. to lobby for the bonus. Uh, This was unsuccessful. The Senate turned them down, and if it hadn't, Herbert Hoover was uh, threatening to veto the bill. But anyway, then they stayed. And eventually, the United States government under Herbert Hoover decided they shouldn't stay, that they posed a threat to good order. And uh, Hoover called out the army, who, uh, and it was headed at that point by Douglas MacArthur, uh, who sent tanks and troops and the cavalry under George Patton and uh, used tear gas to rout the bonus expeditionary force out of Washington, D.C. Now, uh, I think many people do know this story. I think that the reason to retell it and consider what it tells us now in long retrospect about that summer of 1932 is how palpable this sense of discontent was with the way the Hoover administration was dealing with the Depression and how it could have gone in a number of directions. The sort of self-appointed leader of the Bonus Army was a man who likened himself to Hitler and Mussolini, who thought that the Bonus Movement could become a sort of khaki shirt movement along the lines of the black shirts or the brown shirts. And this is what concerned Franklin Roosevelt also as... He was then governor of New York and a candidate for the presidency, is he could see the possibility of fascism in the United States. And he believed it could come in a variety of ways. You know, he saw in the bonus movement 
a kind of populist discontent that could be led by a charismatic person and could potentially threaten democratic government. And, you know, if it weren't that fellow who was leading the bonus movement, it could be somebody like Huey Long, the uh, senator then of Louisiana. Or he also saw that somebody like MacArthur, who was willing to in this case, defy presidential orders in order to drive off these protesters, could also represent the seed of a kind of American fascism that would be backed by businessmen and bankers as a way of keeping communism as they saw it at bay. So Roosevelt saw in this uh, episode a tremendous threat to American democracy. And it's worth pointing out that when he was elected and inaugurated, one of the first things he did was try to defuse this precise threat. One of the first employment programs of the New Deal was the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was not only intended to promote conservationism and, in fact, did improve state and national parks throughout the country, but was aimed specifically at the useful employment of young men to take this disaffected and potentially dangerous element, right, and give them a sense that government was going to work for them. And Roosevelt extended it to apply to these very same veterans who were protesting again. In fact, a number of them came back once Roosevelt was president. But the leader of the movement, the guy who likened himself to Mussolini and Hitler, said, I don't see any point. Right now, the New Deal is doing what we wanted done. Right. So that, in a nutshell, I think, tells us what the threat was to American democracy at that point and to how Roosevelt conceived of the New Deal as a way of diffusing that threat. Yeah, and um, it, it makes for a good contrast, too, between Hoover and, and Roosevelt, I think. You know, aside from the, you know, sicking the army on these folks who had been, by the way, welcomed and, and sort of accommodated by the police chief of Washington, which was kind of a notable detail, I thought, um, <laughs> speaking to their, uh, uh, you know, their their sympathetic profile in the in the in the national consciousness. Um, you know, he was totally convinced that this, uh, this army that was, you know, it, it was right wing in its inflection for sure was composed of communists and criminals and fake veterans. You know, he was just, it was like ideologically inconvenient that there could be, you know, real like push for this sort of thing. And he, so he convinced himself that it was all radicals. Uh, but then, um, there's a great story in there about Lewis Howe and Eleanor Roosevelt, one of my favorite uh, New Deal stories, and what she did with the 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 same group that, that, as you say, came to Washington after Roosevelt was inaugurated. Right? Can you tell us that story? Yeah, as I say, in uh, the spring of 1933, a smaller group, but still some thousands of protesters, came to Washington to renew their demand for the bonus payment. And the Roosevelt White House sent out Louis Howe, who is the principal political aide to Franklin Roosevelt in those days, together with Eleanor, as, as I'm sure you know, but it bears mentioning, right? Roosevelt didn't have the regular use of his legs. It was hard for him to get about. Not infrequently, he would send Eleanor in his status as representative, right, to get out to uh, various parts of the country. And so he sent Louis and Eleanor out there. And then when Louis drove Eleanor out there, Louis said, I'm not getting out of the car. You're getting out of the car, right? And Eleanor had to go out and to talk to the bonus marchers, which at first she was a little tremulous about doing, but quickly sort of gained her uh, uh, confidence. 
found that they treated her well and were interested in her and she was interested in what they had to say. And, you know, she helped to defuse, again, this protest by listening, you know, as one of the veterans is supposed to have said, you know, Hoover sent the army, Roosevelt sent his wife. Uh, and that's, that's a big difference. <laughs> yeah, I, I think pr- most people would be able to make that choice easily. Uh, Eleanor's a, an agreeable person, certainly by all accounts, much more so than Doug MacArthur. Yes. Yeah. And I, I just the, the it's such a, a charming little story, you know, because it, like it's almost impossible to imagine today that the first lady of the United States would just go out among a bunch of, you know, sort of semi homeless, you know, kind of people in an encampment and just sort of charm the pants off of them, basically, like, like. Not, you know, not literally, but like to, to, to like, uh, you know, by, by the end, like they sing her some songs and like she shared a meal with them. And by the end they were, they were just like, Hey, you know, um, uh, like I feel like in many of these, uh, uh, you know, confrontations between like activist groups and the police nowadays, that's like a sort of route that is not even tried with rare exceptions. You know, it's always just like maximum force. You know, and the idea that you might sort of try dialogue and and, uh, you know, argumentation and just like trying to communicate with people to see what their, you know, their needs are. You know, it's a it's a I feel like a, uh, quite an instructive lesson uh, for today. Well, I think you're right. And I think it's something that we even did see sometime in the 60s, sometimes as, for example, here at UC Davis, you know, the administration is seeking to defuse anti-war protests, the chancellor would go down and talk to the protesters and say, I don't like the Vietnam War either, you know, that kind of thing, instead of again sending out the cops or whatever. And I think this is what we're talking about with Eleanor and Franklin's attitude towards uh, protesters. You know, I think that you're right. This is a marked difference between them and Herbert Hoover. You know, Hoover represented a kind of point of view where these people were a threat, not people. They were the mob, right? And they needed to be dealt with or driven off. And Roosevelt was much less bothered by this sort of thing. I mean, you can see this over and over again in the 1934 San Francisco strike, which started on the docks and then became a general strike and had genuinely communist and radical elements in the leadership. You know, the San Francisco press, which was headed by William Randolph Hearst, was clamoring for Franklin Roosevelt to lead the Navy into San Francisco Bay and, you know, meet the strikers with all guns blazing. And Roosevelt said, I'm not going to do that. You know, he's uh, he sent mediators. You know, that was his approach to this sort of thing. I mean, uh, it's something that Robert Jackson, the later Supreme Court justice, pointed out is that Roosevelt really wasn't bothered by communism until the pact. You know, then then he was bothered by the communists. But in general, his fear was that this disaffection would lead to an extreme right takeover. Yeah. You're talking about the like Hitler-Stalin pact, right? The, right. The, the 1939 yeah. uh, Nazi-Soviet pact, Molotov-Ribbentrop pact. Yeah. Um so the 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 second part of your book or second chapter you're you're talking about the Tennessee Valley Authority. The, this is something I think I think a lot of people don't even they either don't know that it exists or they sort of bracket it, you know, as this like a uh, thing that uh you know, it's just a relic of history or it's just sort of there and it does certain things and like doesn't really have any sort of you know, uh concrete like application to anything else. 
Um, but, you know, as you say, uh, you know, th- this is something that was an uh, incredibly ambitious federal project about, you know, I mean, you could you could say in a sense owning the means of production in terms of like power, you know, but but, it, you know, p- uh, public ownership of public resources, you know, p- the, the, the waterways and the power that might be uh, generated. And then, you know, as part of a sort of general uh, development project for what was one of the most impoverished regions of the country, trying to bring them up to the national standard and, you know, deal with a lot of the problems that had been, you know, afflicting the that uh, area for a long time, you know, erosion and, um, you know, lack of uh, good paying jobs and so on. Um, and so can you can you run us through kind of the, the, the thinking of the Tennessee Valley Authority and, and how it kind of evolved uh, as the project kind of uh, uh, continued? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those cases where we shouldn't shy away from uh, the obvious puns and metaphors. So these are concrete achievements that literally empowered the American people. Let's just get it right out there. okay? Uh, in many respects, right, the, you can point to the original TVA anyway and say this is this is what the Green New Deal is. Right. They're going to build these giant dams to generate hydroelectricity. They're going to use that to, as we say, literally empower this region. And it's not going to be an exclusively top-down bureaucratic approach run from Washington. The TVA is going to be a regional authority. It's going to be headquartered in Knoxville. And not only that, they're going to sponsor the creation of producers cooperatives in the region who are going to get together and meet. And it's going to be grassroots democracy, as David Lilienthal, one of the TVA directors, likes to say, right? So as transformative as it is, Right. It, it, it has this kind of small bore localist democratic approach and it represents ecological thinking. Right. The unit of analysis is not the arbitrary state county kind of border that we usually have in American politics. It's the river and its watershed. Right. So as you say, they're thinking about erosion control. They're thinking about controlling a flooding. They're thinking about improving the navigability of the river. And then they're going to use the hydroelectricity not only to generate power for the region, but also to run plants that will produce phosphates, which will be fertilizer. And so that will also sort of put uh, nutrients back into the soil. They get into the business of, you know, stocking wildlife and fish. And just as I say, in general, as in fact, Ernie Pyle, who went there as a reporter in 1935, everything, they think of everything, you know, that is involved in the region. They work through the local extension services and the land-grant colleges to kind of establish demonstration farms, so to show how to plow to avoid erosion, how to use the new fertilizer, how to plant the new kinds of crops to achieve good yields, all kinds of things. And of course, it's worth pointing out, they also make decisions about trade-offs, right? Some people are going to lose in this kind of massive effort at economic development, or at least are going to be not as well treated initially. Uh, The TVA, you know, you build a dam, you got to flood out the reservoir behind it. That means all those folks are going to lose their property. They'll get bought out. It'll certainly be inconvenient. They might not have an immediate place to go. Those who are tenants who are not property owners are going to have very little provision made for them at all. And, of course, the TVA is in the Tennessee Tennessee River. This is the Upper South, as you say. This is not only one of the 
poorest parts of the country. It's one of the country with a vexed racial history, to say the least, right? This is where the original Ku Klux Klan was founded back in the 19th century. It's where the battles to put down the original Ku Klux Klan were waged. That legacy hung over the region then, and I dare say still does today, right? So, and the way the TVA works reflects temporizing with the local racial hierarchy and with racism in the Tennessee Valley region. And it strikes me, first of all, what's wonderful about this book, if I may say so, is uh, because you've picked the chapters based on time and place, uh, and I think obviously for the, the purpose of showing how, you know, the New Deal matters today because of the possibilities on offer uh, that brought by the various crises that we're facing today that resemble in many ways the kind of crises uh, of the day then that had to do with um, the economy, democracy, uh, ecology, racism. And, and it seems like, uh, political theorists here, it seems like the, the, the metaphors of empowerment, right, are, are literally about how we, we power our electricity, but also how we empower our democracy to think collectively, to think long term. And, and so, so it's time with climate change and, and planning really comes into play. And, and I wonder what, um, what do you think some of the lessons might be for, uh, you know, the, the Green New Deal apparently is being reintroduced this week in the House. What do you think some of the, the lessons to key in on uh, should be with respect to the kinds of principles we need to have in operation to to think about that kind of democratic empowerment that, that understands uh, the man-made world and its connection to nature as, as being fundamental to how we kind of get out of these crises and address them in a powerful way? Yeah, I think the... Um the Green New Deal in its uh, original incarnation or any of its several original incarnations seemed already to be mindful of these kinds of lessons that you want to have these massive projects that will put people to work in good jobs to build the kinds of, let's say, wind farms or solar generation facilities or flood control uh, pumping facilities or whatever, whatever it is that will help deal with crime crises and plan to go forward for more sustainable power uh, production. So that gives you a direct parallel to the kinds of things that the New Deal did. It is also informed by a desire, and you hear this particularly eloquently, I think, from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who points out that the original New Deal did a lot to not only um, preserve, but even kind of augment uh, racial inequity in many ways, and that she wants the Green New Deal to be designed to avoid those things. And we've also seen that in the, the infrastructure bill that the administration has put forward to try to redress longstanding inequities that have been created by infrastructure projects that have spoiled particular neighborhoods, which were chosen to be spoiled, particularly because of their racial makeup, right? And so I think that you know, uh, you don't have to be um, a sophisticated analyst of the New Deal to be mindful of these kinds of things. Now, if you want to dig a little bit deeper, I think uh, one of the things that I, that, I, that I get into in the book that I think is worth thinking about is that the more – well, let me back up a sec. In 1932-33, the federal government was very small. They had to borrow state capacity in order to implement a lot of New Deal projects – Quickly. So I talk a little bit about, for example, the Civil Works Administration of 1933-34 and how they relied on the VA 
the Veterans Administration to do their accounting and to get the checks out, right? And how they relied on the army to supply them with trucks to deliver material to the places, to the work sites, and to drive checks around the country. And this is a point at which a federal check is still an exotic item, and Roosevelt has to make a personal plea to banks to honor them, right? So that just kind of tells you where you are, right? And they, they had to borrow uh, the offices of unemployment from states and counties because they simply didn't have this kind of structure themselves. The effect of outsourcing stuff to states and localities, or indeed to private enterprise, which is what happens with the real estate parts of the New Deal, is often to sort of cede a lot of ground to racists, not to be too blunt about it. So in the South, when you cede things to the local Democratic parties, you're really ceding a lot to the segregationists. In the real estate programs, particularly in the latter part of the 1930s, when you cede a lot of power for, you know, designating neighborhoods as worth lending to to local real estate agents, you're ceding a lot of power to racists, right? So whereas when Harry Hopkins keeps the power for himself and or when Harold Dickies keeps the power for himself, the New Deal has actually nationally pretty robust anti-discrimination policies. It even has pretty, you know, strong and successful anti-discrimination programs, sort of proto-affirmative action programs. So I think thinking about who's running things is going to be very important going forward. And, you know, I know it's popular in the United States always to sort of decentralize things, and maybe that's inevitable, and also to work with public-private partnerships, and maybe that's to a degree inevitable. But I think one has to be mindful of how New Dealers did and didn't get around uh, the problems that are generated by those methods. Yeah. On the on the specific point of like um environmental conservation uh uh re- reading through your you know you have like a sort of brief uh sketch of what the TVA um ended up doing in the in the uh after the kind of uh prime new deal period like in the 60s and 70s um and they got much more into just like power generation period and they built a ton of coal uh power plants and nuclear power plants um but also that like uh you know y- you have these dams that are built you know and there's massive environmental uh impacts you know there's but there's no uh EPA yet there's no environmental impact statements and that was true across the country you know grand coulee dam and stuff you know flooding huge chunks of of country with really not any uh attempt to take account of what that's going to do to the wildlife and so on um but as the as time passes um there's a there's a good podcast i'm uh, gonna recommend recommend by my friend uh, brian durker uh who's a river runner in his podcast big adventures and he has this uh, scientist named steve carruthers who's been working in grand canyon for the park service and uh uh you know other government agencies and universities and so on for like 50 years um and there's an interesting story there about how you know after these dams went in you know around grand canyon you've got um you know lake mead at the bottom lake powell at the top um and huge environmental impacts but uh as time passed and they they they're like shit we need to study this and figure out what's happening and they were forced to basically do planning of a sort you know to try and stabilize the beaches in grand canyon and try to to stabilize the riparian habitat 
introduced this beetle to kill off uh, the, these invasive tamarisk species that were like out competing a lot of the native, uh, you know, mesquite uh, and other types of plants. And so, you know, that strikes me as something that would be inevitable of any kind of Green New Deal. You know, it's like you're going to have to build a whole ton of stuff. But at the same time, you're going to have to, you know, manage the, uh, the the side effects of the environment. And that's just going to mean you're you're kind of taking on the responsibility for planning these ecosystems to, you know, achieve something like, you know, a natural balance. You know, it's like the, the human impact is already just so inextricable in every part of the country that if you want, you know, like a robust, um, you know, environment, like people are going to have to make that happen is kind of my conclusion, at least in most places, um, especially when you're, you know, building like tons of, uh, you know, solar farms or wind farms and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I think that the only way you can expect to mitigate those things are not only by talking to experts like you, like your friend and the people he talks to and, and other environmental scientists, which, of course, the New Deal did back in the 1930s with a different state of knowledge, obviously, but also to reach out to various local communities and try to, to let the information you get from accumulating that local knowledge, right, shape the planning that you do and yeah. the kinds of trade-offs that you make. And, um, you know, the New Deals had some successes and had some failures in here. And I talk about a little bit of both of them in the book. I mean, in the um, in the case of the Taylor Drazi- Grazing Act of 1934, which disposes of federal grazing that ends homesteading, right? So that ends the 19th century process of handing out land for free, right? But then it also says federal control of the land will be informed by opinions of local ranchers and the sort of oral histories of local ranchers. And as the first director of the uh, grazing division said, you're going to have to decide who are you opening the gate for and who are you going to kick in the ear and tell them to go owning a filling. They have to open a filling station, right? You have to say some folks are going to get the advantages here and some are going to get the disadvantages here. And you know that in the short term, you know, the grazing programs are quite successful. You also know that in the long term, there's a tremendous backlash, right? The BLM is one of the principal villains, right, of a certain segment of the West, right? And you can say the same kind of thing about the um, simultaneous uh, so-called Indian New Deal or the Wheeler-Howard Act, right, which ends... You know, in parallel, ends the parceling out of the native lands. It re-empowers, you know, the native nations. But it's not entirely successful in every case in sort of heeding local tradition, right, despite the efforts at consultation and the rhetoric about, you know, heeding local tradition. So these are obvious difficult things to do. The only thing I think you can say or the lesson you can draw is is this is what you have to try doing if you're going to meet even with a modicum of success in these large projects. How does one think, Eric, about the balance of because experimentation and risk taking seems important uh, as we as we try to draw a parallel to today but but also some prudence uh, as you, as you mentioned before for you know incipient fascism and and, and groups uh, of disaffected people uh giving them the ability to work and and, and have um, essentially their instinct for for dictatorship pacified by uh, giving them meaningful uh work and dignity of work and and uh, the ability to live a livable life 
those kinds of things seem prudent to focus on initially. As you look at like the infrastructure act that's being proposed here and, and kind of the, the need to think through, um, you know, what's required to, to, to make some kind of parallel achievement over the years. Do you think about certain things that need to be done first or, or, you know, what's your evaluation of uh, what's going on now with the infrastructure act and the green new deal? And um, maybe if you see any, any kind of pitfalls that should be avoided. Well, I do think that first of all, that if the infrastructure bill or something like it doesn't go through, I think any comparison to the new deal is dead in the water, right? Because, you know, we had the massive stimulus, which is good. But the point that I try to make in the book is, you know, stimulus is a metaphor that kind of tells on itself, right? It says, all we really need is to goose the organism and get it going again. There's nothing wrong with the organism, right? The same with the metaphor that we often use of bailout, right? It's like the idea is that the system is fundamentally sound. We just need to get the water out of the hold, right? The New Deal aimed at reconfiguring American society fundamentally to make it in terms that Roosevelt used, as well as other New Dealers, uh, more of a program for social justice, right? That, that is literally the phrase that he used, that they used, and it is still around today. And it means basically the same thing, right? To make a society that is better for the vast majority of people. And if that requires putting federal pressure in one place where it didn't used to be, then that's what you got to do, right? So the New Deal aimed to reshape American society to empower groups that had not previously had power, whether that's labor unions, whether that's native nations, whether that's the South, whether that's the elderly, right? You can go down a long list of groups that the New Deal sought to empower in one way or another, right? Um, So the infrastructure bill and any reform effort going forward has to aim at doing that. And I believe that it does, right? I think what the infrastructure bill certainly seems to aim at is, as you say, giving good jobs to people who otherwise wouldn't have them. And that's not just putting money in their pockets, as Keynesian stimulus would tell us that we should do. It's not even just giving the dignity of work to people who wouldn't otherwise have it. It's also employing people under good conditions, So you're putting upward pressure on the whole labor marketplace by saying, well, you're going to work, you know, a decent number of hours. You're going to have decent sick leave. You're going to have decent health care. You're going to have decent overtime policy because it's the government, right, who's doing it. So you're putting upward pressure on the whole sector. That's where something like the uh, elder care elements of the bill, which have been so comprehensively mocked in certain parts of the culture, are actually really vitally important. Right. Because if you are putting the government in that business, you are going to change that sector of the workforce. Right. For the better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any kind of uh, New Deal type of thinking applied to the United States in 2021 obviously is going to be very different uh, to the you know New Deal itself. I mean, what it was like 20 percent of people worked on farms or 20% of workers, something like that, if I remember correctly, you know, so just a vastly different society um, and a lot older society than it was back in them days. Um, you're, on your last chapter, uh, is, um, I, I have a, a, a few other questions, but I, I, I think this may be a good uh, 
you know, point spe- speaking of like the sort of everyday reality, you, 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 uh, the, the chapter is called the street where you live. And it's just about, you know, not the big power dams and the, you know, massive aluminum factories or whatever. It's the stuff that the New Deal built everywhere. And practically, I think every single county of the country had some kind of New Deal project in it. And so um, can you uh, talk about like what that was and uh, how people have, I think, uh, they've it's sort of a window into how people have forgotten the new deal and the legacy of activist government, uh, was and is necessary to this day to making the United States a, like a functional society. Like we had libertarian dystopia in 1932 and it almost killed the entire, the whole Republic was going to go up in smoke. I think that's a, that's a, uh, a, you know, arguable conclusion at least. Um, but the, you know, the, the new deal is what allowed the, the U S to become a, uh, you know, a, a, the world power, you know, and, and why there are places for you to walk on the sidewalk in so many parts of the country, right? Yeah. I mean, since we've just been talking about uh, ecological thinking, I guess this kind of metaphor on the brain. But, you know, when you talk to conservationists now, one of the things they say is, you know, everyone wants to talk about the whales or the elephants because these are these sort of grand creatures. There's a phrase for this. They're the charismatic megafauna. Right. Of the discourse of car of conservationism. But really, we need to work worry about, you know, the bio, the whole biome, you know, even the less glamorous organisms that are vitals to life on Earth. Right. Well, if we think about the TVA or, as you say, Grand Coulee Dam or the Triborough Bridge or the Bay Bridge or, you know, the various airports or stadiums or anything with plaque on it. Right. Those are the charismatic megafauna of the New Deal. Right. And they're great. But. The thing that you're not focusing on is that the vast amount of money spent during the New Deal is spent on widening roads or building roads or adding sidewalks to improve roads. In fact, uh, in my town, as in many towns in America, you can still find you know, a WPA stamp on your local sidewalk somewhere or other because sidewalks last basically forever if tree roots don't interfere with them, right? So they're... Um, you know, they're still there. And the idea that they should be there is vitally important, right? That's our public sphere. That's where we walk and meet each other and have that kind of space that's so vital to the formation of a community. And there are analogies in a modern Green New Deal. One of the things that people like to point out is the idea of universal broadband, right? That's our modern sidewalk, if you like. I know that I know that in the uh, old days we used to call it the information superhighway, but really I think we want to think in terms of the information sidewalk, right? That it goes right <laughs> past your front door. I love it. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that I think is vitally important to the New Deal. As you say, it was everywhere. In fact, it is everywhere. This is one of the things that people say, well, why is the New Deal important? If you've ever had a job, you've benefited from the New Deal, right? The minimum wage is from the New Deal. The child labor provisions uh, are the opposite of child labor is from the New Deal, right? If you draw an old age pension, you've benefited from the New Deal. If you had a bank account, you've benefited from the New Deal because of, if you've ever had a dollar, the dollar that we have today is a relic of the first days of the New Deal when Roosevelt took the dollar off the gold standard, right? There, I mean, any part of the economy 
is shaped by the New Deal intimately, even now today. And that's just for a start. Right. And then we could move on to, you know, if you ever joined a union or benefited from other people joining a union. Right. Then you benefited from the New Deal. It's also global. Right. I mean, the Roosevelt administration's um, peace policy that they hammer out during the war. Right. Shapes still structures the world today, both for good and ill with the Bretton Woods Institution, the IMF and the World Bank, not to mention the United Nations organizations. These are all, you know, the internationalization of the New Deal. In many respects, as I say, for good and ill. So, you know, people want to ask why the New Deal matters, man. It's because it is the air that we breathe. And we we talk about the world being under threat. It's the world that the New Deal built. Yeah. Um, To uh, maybe to back up or zero in a little bit more on like sort of modern um, modern lessons in terms of politics. You have a chapter in here about that. That's uh, kind of a window into the relationship of African-Americans to the new deal. Um, that, that, that's a, you know, constant topic of discussion. You know, obviously, uh, Roosevelt had in his coalition, the Southern Democrats who were, you know, some of them were kind of economically populist, but most were pretty racist. Uh, and you know, it required a lot of, grim compromises with white supremacy basically to do anything in the 1930s. However, uh, Roosevelt did successfully cater to the black voting population where they could vote uh, outside of the South. And, um, you know, for a while there, the, 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 the Democrats did manage to sort of tread that line, um, you know, uh, uh, catering to a, a, a white working class constituency that was pretty racist and also to a black working class constituency that, um, you know, uh, uh, w- was left out in many cases, but also benefited and felt that the Democrats were a better bet than the Republicans. So, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about that, you know, that relationship and what lessons it might uh, shed for today? Yeah. I mean, as you say, in many respects, the New Deal's relationship to black voters is a product of this particular historical moment, right? Um, The Democratic Party, as it existed in the 19th century, was sort of, on the one hand, the party of the South, the white South. And on the other hand, it was the party of immigrant and ethnic populations in northern cities, So if you want to win the presidency as a Democrat, you have to win the White South, but you also have to win Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, you know, San Francisco to a lesser degree, right? So you have to really, as you say, kind of tread a line and appease one constituency on the one hand and the other constituency on the other hand. You have to talk a lot more racist when you campaign in Alabama than when you campaign in Massachusetts. And this is, you know, the awkward position that the Democratic Party and its awkwardness is brought into stark contrast in, for example, the the career of um, Al Smith, Roosevelt's predecessor as Democratic nominee for president, who probably lost in large measure because he was Irish Catholic, right? And so the uh, a lot of the White South didn't go for Al Smith because he was an alien presence to them, right? He's an Irish Catholic from New York City, it bears saying, right? So um, that shows you the division that there is in the Democratic Party at this point. And what Roosevelt is able to do is to kind of talk out of both sides of his mouth, as you suggest, right? On the one hand, he has a summer home in warm, sorry, a winter home in Warren Springs, Georgia. 
So he's able to say, I am a resident of Georgia. And that represents a certain accommodation with the local hierarchy in the state of Georgia, which is to say with white supremacists. On the other hand, he's a New York progressive, and Eleanor is even more of a New York progressive. And when he's uh, in those kinds of situations, he can talk out of that side of his mouth. Now, the other key to what Roosevelt can do, and one of the reasons that a lot of the um, black officials within the New Deal, I think, forgive Roosevelt or forgave him later, is he's able to say, well, the first priority is to get out of the Depression that we are going to put that forward. That's going to bring a lot of black folks along with us. Their lot is going to improve, even though I am not going to make the anti-lynching bill a priority, let's say. I am going to make hiring programs a priority, and that will make the lives of black people a lot better. And then, of course, he's able to do the same thing with the war. Like, what's the great anti-racist program in the world come 1940? Well, it's beating the Nazis. Hard to argue with that, right? So (laughs) Roosevelt is in a position where, you know, he's able to say quite convincingly that there are these higher priorities than specifically doing this or specifically doing that. It's kind of awful in many respects, right? Uh, Robert Weaver, who I talk a bit about in the book, who uh, you know uh, uh, later became the first African American cabinet secretary in American history in the administration of Lyndon Johnson, but also worked in the New Deal. Said you know, in, a, in an interview much later, he said, "I think do I think Roosevelt was a great president? Yes, but he was not a great civil rights president, and that is pretty much the truth." Now, the bar is low though in 1933, right? Sure, this is the yeah. other thing, right. right? I mean, Hoover was terrible on. African-American civil rights. All you had to do was be not quite as terrible. And this is the great fact of the New Deal politically is that between 1932 and 1936, the majority of black voters go from being Republican voters to being Democratic voters, and they basically stay there. And it's because of the New Deal, not just because, you know, the New Deal provides jobs to black workers, which it does, but because black voters' political preferences in the 1920s had already been more to the left, and the New Deal is showing them that this is the direction the Democratic Party is going in. And Roosevelt's administration acknowledges this, especially in the latter half of the second term. So in the latter part of the 1930s, Roosevelt's Justice Department creates what becomes the Civil Rights Division. It's originally the Civil Liberties Unit, then the Civil Rights Section, and eventually it's the Civil Rights Division. And the first case that they bring to the Supreme Court is a case to establish that primary elections should be regulated by the federal government, which immediately civil rights activists understand to mean that that means you cannot have an all-white primary. And the NAACPLDF sort of picks up that ball and runs with it, with Thurgood Marshall and William Hasty bring the case that Smith versus Allwright in 1944. So the administration nationally, the Democratic Party nationally, becomes the party of civil rights, even while locally it remains the party of segregation in the South. It's going to take, you know, the better part of three decades, as you know, to work that out completely. But this is the beginning of that uh, long shift. Now, so what's the lesson there? I'm going to point to one piece of that lesson, which is that you've got a segment of the electorate that's historically devotedly Republican in 1932, but is won over by 1936. So within a very short period of time, the Roosevelt administration was able to demonstrate to a segment of the electorate that it was going to do more for them than the party they'd previously been loyal to. 
That's a possibility for the Democratic Party today, right, to make that kind of gesture, not necessarily to black voters in this case today, but other voters who have been disaffected from the Democratic Party in the past. Yeah. And it, well, it also strikes me that, you know, the 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 org like the political base and the structure of the Democratic Party does does not have the conservative southern element in it at all anymore. Right. So if you're thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm doing new dealism, uh, you don't have to do any of that. You don't have to buy off the Southern conservatives. They're all in the Republican party. Now you want to smash them, right? I mean that, or that's what I would want to do. You know, (laughs) I, I'm going to force you not to be racist. I'm going to force you to have quotas and you know, whatever. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I often hear that like, oh, we can't do, you know, the new deal is a bad example because the new deal is racist. Well, like doing it in a modern context, you would not have the Dixiecrats that need to be appeased, right? And so you could have a much more, uh, in a civil rights sense, a much more robust, uh, egalitarian sort of basic framework for things that um, seems like, you know, at least as, as far as, you know, that that logic would work, that you could, you know, buy off whoever, you know, whoever might be a loyal Republican in 2020 and uh, switch teams, Um you know, you don't, you don't, it's, it's just not an, an issue anymore, right? In addition to which, you mentioned before that a, a lot of the, the redlining and some of the other racist uh, legacies had to do with what you suggested, which was that uh, the federal capacity wasn't what it is today. And so, so state and local control uh, kind of had to be, you know, we, we had to cede to, you know, what was, you know, racist local control in ways that isn't true today as well, right? Yeah, I think of that latter point, that's going to be critical is to make sure that you don't have racist local control to the extent possible. I mean, obviously, no program can be perfect, right? But yeah. uh, it, it's certainly possible to do better than the TVA. And if you want to know what it looks like, you look at the WPA, right, which was which was much better at these sorts of things. Um, I think the other, you know, to, to your point, Ryan, I think that, you know, you can't forget, I think one of the major lessons of the New Deal is that Good policy is also good politics, right? If you go and help the people who need help, in general, this will pay off in generating loyalty for the party. So you can't just ignore the South, you know, which in many respects is part of the country that most needs health and in fact needs help. And in fact, where there are a lot of loyal Democrats, just because those states go red doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of Uh, loyal Democrats in the States. Um, Don't forget the Harry Harry Hopkins mantra, which he tried to disavow. But, uh, you know, it's we shall tax and tax and spend and spend and elect and elect. Right. (laughs) These these things work. Right. If, if, If you provide material benefits for people, you're demonstrating that democracy works. And that helps bring them along on behalf of democracy. It's not going to get everybody, as Harry Hopkins also said about the South. There's some people down there that would shoot Santa Claus, right? And that's <laughs> fair enough. It's probably true today. But, uh, you know, the, the general principle, I think, works. Can I ask then, is there, because as Ryan was speaking, I was thinking of, you know, well, what are the dangers with, say, a Biden administration? And and when I think of Biden in particular, uh I'm happy, you know, that he spoke out, uh, for the, uh, the Bessemer union, uh, you know, collective bargaining attempt. And, uh, and I see him having appeal, you know, across parties to, to the working class and to others. But then I see him in the wake of all these police killings 
right? Talking about the violence of the riots and, and nothing excuses that violence. And, and, and it just, it's, it does strike me as the kind of thing, you know, the, the white moderate that Dr. King warned us about, uh, you know, would say, right? Which is, which is to, to portray kind of, um, you know, all of the conditions that give rise to, to the current tragedies with policing, um, as being something that is, um, you know, equally, uh, responsible, uh, and something that both we, we should, we should condemn both sides on or something. And, and so I do wonder if there are pitfalls and dangers, uh, where, where there are kind of racist, uh, elements that can be papered over in, in trying to cross party lines today. What, what, what do you think? Do you think there are, there are, are things that we should look out for and, and learn from the, the politics of, of the past that, that informed today's politics in that sense? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not as if we didn't know what we were getting with uh, President Biden. I mean, this right. is a guy yeah. who, unless I'm mistaken, his public career began the year I was born. And as you can tell by looking at me, I'm not a young man. So <laughs> he's who he obviously appears to be. I mean, it's not it's not like we're getting tricked in some way it's true. Uh, with him. And we can certainly expect him to say things that, uh, you know, your more progressive elements wouldn't agree with. Um, the thing that I will say, I mean, you know, you mentioned him speaking about out, out about uh, the best number. All he did, of course, was state the law. Right. But in the current political climates, <laughs> to state huge thing the these law days, sounds yeah. radical, right? It's, 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 it's madness. Um, I think the thing I would point to, you maybe just uh, it was either Friday or Thursday. It was this week. There was the issue with the refugee quotas, where Biden announced right. he was going right. to keep the Trump quotas, and then a lot of people in his party yelled about it, and he said, "Actually, we won't keep the Trump quotas." Right, and that's very heartening to me. You know, I mean that, and that does kind of smack of Rooseveltism. You know, there's there's a probably apocryphal story that's told about Roosevelt. And I the reason I say that is because it's told about different activists. There's a version with Philip Randolph and there's a version with Sidney Hillman. But in either case, they go to Roosevelt, they pitch for a policy, and Roosevelt says, okay, you've persuaded me. It's the right thing to do. Now go out and make me do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, even if this is an apocryphal story, it does illustrate how Roosevelt actually operated. If you dig in, he encouraged people to pressure his administration in the direction that he wanted to go. So then he could publicly say, well, you know, if I don't strike out in this direction, then terrible things will happen. Huey Long will take over, right? There will be a march on Washington, whatever, you know, it was. So if Biden is not even encouraging, you know, pressure from the left, but at least is responsive to pressure from the left, that's, hopeful. that's a good thing. Um, I've just got one more question for you. Um uh, Gabriel Winant, I believe, another another mm. professor, uh, he he ha he put recently wrote an article. I believe it was in uh, N plus one um, or or somewhere else about about um, about the uh, the 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 internal contradictions of the New Deal coalition, and so the like sort of making the case that the New Deal is sort of historically not like that great of an ex uh, uh, an example uh, because, you know, it had the internal contradictions we've been talking about, white racists, black voters, and that was indeed what cracked the um, 
you know, the coalition apart during the civil rights movement um, in the 60s. Um, and eventually, you know, sort of leaving us with the coalition of, of forces that we now have today. Um, but I wonder, I don't know, my, my sense is that I, I think that was a much more contingent process than, um, you know, sort of making out it's like a little bit too materialist for my take in terms of determinist, maybe just in general. Uh, and that I think that, you know, you could see things going a lot of different ways after the 60s, you know, sort of keeping the New Deal coalition intact enough and just like bringing in the black, you know, working class, basically, and having a labor party, more or less. Now, you know, we're in sort of a different situation where it's like a lot of the working class, even the uh, Latino working class uh, sort of went for Trump relative to where they had been in some cases by a great, a very large margin in 2020. Um, and while the, the democratic party has come to rely more and more on highly educated, more wealthier people in the suburbs, whites, you know, in particular. Um, and yet it also strikes me that like, there's a lot of doom saying about, you know, well, the Democrats are now like the party of the sort of like petty bourgeoisie or whatever, you know, like, like college professors, you know, <laughs> no offense, just kidding. Um, but, but, <laughs> but, you know, like, uh, uh, people who are maybe are not super into, you know, union politics and that sort of thing. But again, you know, it seems like pretty contingent. Uh, uh, we are in a moment that, that seems very uns—the uh, party coalition seemed very unstable to me. And so um, it seems like the lesson of the New Deal, good policy uh, is good politics. It's like if you do things that help people, then you win votes. You know, that like, uh, let's forget what political science has said for the last uh, 10 years or so. And, um, you know— you're not, uh, you're not doing, you know, you don't have a segregated South anymore, but, um, it's, uh, the basic formula seems like it's still fairly promising. Uh, but I don't know what, what's your take on this sort of like question of party dialectics and so on? Well, uh, Gabe and I have a friendly Twitter disagreement over this point that you've, uh, uh, mentioned and, I said a while back that my uh, my hot take is that it's not really the civil rights movement that uh, fractures the Democratic Party in a sort of fatal way, but rather the Vietnam War. And mm. that if uh, Johnson had struck out in favor of civil rights, continuing the trend that goes back to the 30 years to the Roosevelt era, and managed not to double down on the ill-considered commitment to Vietnam— uh, the Democratic Party might have been in a much better shape uh, by the end of the 60s. They certainly wouldn't have alienated the left and young voters and black voters in the way that they did. Right. And that might have put them in a much stronger period, uh, you know, come the end of the 60s, uh, beginning of the 70s. But as you say, this is a highly contingent argument. And, uh, you know, counterfactuals are something we could talk about uh, all day and probably never really persuade each other. I do think that ultimately... These questions kind of answer themselves. If you support something that's not what the Republican Party is selling today, then what you have as a vehicle for it is the Democratic Party with all of its flaws, uh, uh, which are different from the flaws of 1932, but are still there. And the best potential policy framework is, as you just said, to help people. 
you know, that's what politics is allegedly for if it's not actually about hurting people, right? <laughs> yeah. So the uh, if you're on the helping people side, then what choice do you have? The New Deal, as I, as I try to point out in the book, is if not the only, certainly the largest and most successful mobilization of American patriotism that isn't for the purpose of killing people, right? And that makes it a resource, I think, that's still available for emulation and indeed inspiration. Absolutely. If I might just have the, my final question sure. follow up on that, because, I, I, you know, it, it strikes me that it's so important that Roosevelt welcomed the hatred of the bankers and was a class traitor. Uh, because today it's not just the, the re Republicans that, that we have to worry about. It's, it's, it's the Democrats that are beholden to the donor class. And, and, and so, you know, I guess my question for you is it, you know, what goes into the ability of an administration and of maybe, um, grassroots politics to push an administration to take on, um, the donor class and, and, and for, for the Democrats, right? To, to not just be that white moderate. Uh, that Dr. King warned us about. Is it, is it simply just having a leader like FDR who had that courage? Or, or what else can we learn from the history about uh, what we can do and what we can look for in order to take on that, that, that very challenging obstacle within the Democratic Party? I think it's not just so much that FDR was courageous. It's I think that he and we, I think we all know this, but it's worth pointing out that very early on from the time that he was elected was worried about Nazism in the world and in the United States. He saw that as the threat of the day. And so he was willing to make common cause with people who were opposed to Nazism, whether that was you know, Henry Stimson or Winston Churchill, right? These were the people he's willing to make common cause with. And he was willing to have a strong electoral coalition that was small d democratic at home. So it's not that he was necessarily courageous or even a great leader or an inspirational speaker. It's that he understood politics in those terms, that you want to be in a broad sense, small d democratic and anti-Nazi. I hope that President Biden takes that view <laughs> um, to, the, to the extent that he does. I think that will put us in a good position because, again, that would put him in a position of listening to progressive and organized elements of American society. By the way, do you want to have a... a did you plant your, yourself on one of the sides in the fascism debate about the Trump administration and so forth? <laughs> I uh, I didn't. Um, I mean, you know, this week, I don't know if you saw this, uh, this week Noam Chomsky gave an interview to the Boston Review where he came down squarely on the January 6th was obviously a coup. What are you talking about, side? Uh, <laughs> who would I be to argue with Noam Chomsky uh, on the Left Anchor podcast? That is what I would say. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Well, um, that's uh, that's all I've got for you, Eric. Uh, the book is called "Why the New Deal Matters," um, and for my, you know, for my piece, I think that the the, you know, what what is most inspirational to me again is not the specific elements. Of the you know, I mean, I like the the big big construction, pro you know, the the charismatic mega projects. You know, that's all that's all very cool. You know, I think that captured the imaginations of a lot of people. Um, but how it, it reconfigured the, the sort of social contract and the peop 
people's uh, relationship with their government. You know, I think there today there's just a ton of despair about the uh, the capacity of the government to do anything, do anything right. You know, it's like we got the Iraq war and the bank bailout, you know, and like that's pretty much it. You know, I think uh, Lexi can confirm, you know, you, you pe- young, educated people just sort of instinctively despair at the idea that like it's impossible that the government could do anything. Um, and yet, you know, I went and got my coronavirus vaccine yesterday at a FEMA site, got my big government, uh, Bill Gates microchip, uh, implanted <laughs> in my arm. And, um, yeah, I have become incredibly powerful. I can now lift a car over my head. And <laughs> but, but, but that was it, an efficient, uh, enterprise they had going on there. Absolutely. I mean, it, it was well oiled efficiency. I mean, that was better than any clinic I have ever attended my entire life, better than any hospital, you know, stuff was just going really quick. They had it all down to a T. And it felt, you know, aside from, yay, got my vaccine, was like, I don't know, I guess I didn't quite realize how great it felt on a sort of emotional, spiritual level to see the government is doing some shit, it's doing some good shit for helping people, you know, uh, not just me, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of people in this facility, they can do 6,000 shots a day, apparently, and it was like... Publicly funded, you didn't have to pay a thing, you were in and out, served everyone, didn't matter who you were, there was no priority given based on, you know, any any particularities, right? Yeah, I didn't have to get out my insurance card and fight with the receptionist for half an hour, you know, it was, (laughs) it was like... It's you literally know, a shot in the arm. Yeah. Yes. Where, uh, you know, metaphor collapse. Yeah. Uh, is, as David Roth points out, is a feature of our era. And it's true on the left as well on the right. So, and that, you know, I feel um, uh, experiencing it is one way to feel that. And I think reading a little bit about that history, you know, it, it has Absolutely. happened in the past and it can happen again. And, you know, in some. Yeah. In if some, you ever visit a TVA site, you know, you will see somewhere the legend built for the people of the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, they were not shy about pointing these things out. And this is one thing, one piece of advice I would give to the current administration is right. put a plaque on it, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, by the people and for the people. That's what we're talking about. If you That's love right. it, you should put a plaque on it. That's uh, there you go. <laughs> sage wisdom for the ages. But anyway, thanks for coming on the show, Professor Roushway. We'll link to the book in the uh, episode notes and so forth. And uh, yeah, definitely worth picking up. Absolutely. It's been a delight. Thanks, you guys. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.